2: It's very difficult to keep the line between the past
0: and the present. You believe that someone out of the past can enter and take possession of a living being? We may be through with the past, but the past is not through with us.
2: Welcome to the next Picture Show, a movie of the week podcast devoted to a classic film and how it's shaped our thoughts on a recent release. I'm Tasha Robinson, here with Genevieve Kosky,
1: Scott Tobias, Keith Phipps.
2: Here on The Next Picture Show, we believe that no film exists in a vacuum and that all culture is more interesting in context. So every other week, we get together to talk over a classic film and consider how it relates to a current movie. This week, we're going to look at a new science fiction sequel about androids and humanity and see how it stacks up to the original. Uh, But first, somebody should do something about that tortoise lying in the corner of the studio over there. Genevieve. It's, it's thrashing around trying to turn itself over, but it can't, not without your help, but you're not helping. Why is that, Genevieve? Why aren't you helping?
0: Well, for one thing, all my turtle maintenance time goes to my own pet turtle at home. But for another thing, we're trying to record here, Tasha. That tortoise is going to be fine for the next hour. So while we consider Denis Villeneuve's Blade Runner 2049 and how it takes up the story Ridley Scott's Blade Runner started back in 1982... Scott's film, a heavily rewritten adaptation of Philip K. Dick's novel Do Androids Dream of Electric Sheep, deals with the far future world of 2019, where artificial people called replicants have been created to work in hazardous conditions in off-world colonies. Replicants are banned on Earth, so when some of them rebel and return, android hunters called Blade Runners are dispatched to hunt them down and quote-unquote retire them. Villeneuve's sequel takes up the story 30 years later and has a police replicant called K doing his own Blade Runner work, retiring models that are considered obsolete. Both films question what it means to be human, but both of them also keep the philosophy submerged under action. Maybe to cover up the fact that apparently all you need to be human is a few convincing stories about your mother and a snappy answer to that turtle question.
2: Um, yeah, I can certainly tell many convincing stories about my mother which is a thing that I have because I am definitely a human. Uh, we'll be right back after this break to talk about both Blade Runner movies. Or at least I'll be back after this break. The rest of you, it may depend on your human reflexes. <laughs> I've got four skin jobs walking the streets, walking streets. They're either a benefit or a hazard. They're a benefit. It's not my problem. Not my problem. I'm Rachel. Deckard. Have you ever retired a human by mistake? By mistake? By mistake? No. I need the old Blade Runner. Blade Runner. This is a bad one. Bad
0: one. How can it not know what it is? If only you could see what I've seen. I've seen what I've seen. More human than human is our motto.
2: Back in 1992, when the so-called director's cut of Blade Runner was released, L.A. Times film critic Kenneth Turan wrote a monumental piece about the making of the film, which is apparently the kind of nightmare usually reserved for Francis Ford Coppola or Stanley Kubrick movies. The people who worked on it called it Blood Runner, Turan writes, a sardonic tribute to the amount of personal grief and broken relationships it caused, and they recall it with horror and awe. Among other things, Turan tracks how Hampton Fancher's script, adapted from Philip K. Dick's novel, spent a long time bouncing around Hollywood because producer Michael Dealey wanted Ridley Scott to direct, and Scott was busy with a little movie called Alien. The script, which kept changing names from Android to Animal to Mechanismo to Dangerous Days, went through eight revisions before Fancher was bumped off the project, and at one point, they apparently brought in Dustin Hoffman as the lead. Scott did eventually sign on, and he promptly showed up on the first day of shooting and began redesigning the set. Turan describes the design process as an attempt to get to a point where, quote, progress and decay would exist hand in hand. Ridley Scott started his career as a production designer, which helps explain both the meticulous, elaborate design of Blade Runner and Alien and other films he's directed, and the hell that he put his designers through on this film. It may also explain why Blade Runner is so obsessed with slowly exploring these elaborate urban exteriors and the costumed people and the flashing, floating neon signs that flow through them. Blade Runner is a visual dream of a movie, but at its worst, it can also feel inert and listless, as if Scott is more interested in drifting through the world he's created than chasing the replicants around in it. There is a fair bit of action and violence in Blade Runner, especially toward the end, but the film is built more around the sullen, frustrated mood of the city than around those story beats, and Scott's obsession with a feeling of the future is a large part of that. But to some degree, that attitude also comes baked into the story. Harrison Ford stars as Rick Deckard, a kind of future bounty hunter called a Blade Runner. The story behind that title, by the way, is a long, complicated one, and it's well worth looking into. The history involves William S. Burroughs and a novelist named Alan Norse, who came up with the term for his healthcare dystopia novel, which literally has men who run black market scalpels around town. Rick Deckard considers himself retired, but he's forced back into service when a group of rogue replicants arrive on Earth, and he's ordered to hunt them down. That's part of the sullen, reluctant feel of the movie. Deckard isn't a true believer, invested in the need to kill artificial humanoids. He's a beaten down, weather-worn character in Raymond Chandler mode. And like so many noir detectives, he spends a good part of the story getting beaten up for his efforts. And so Blade Runner doesn't feel anything like a conventional science fiction action story. It is a hero who's charged with killing sentient beings solely because they don't want to be slaves. He doesn't seem to like what he does, and he isn't necessarily all that good at it. Midway through the film, he even falls for a replicant named Rachel, played by Sean Young, as a confused woman who can't accept that she's artificial. She seems to mostly want to escape Deckard, even as he's pulling her into a relationship. And the primary villains Deckard is facing include Roy Batty and Pris, replicants played by Rutger Hauer and Daryl Hannah, who have a sort of feral Joker and Harley Quinn relationship, but sometimes just come across as desperate for the life they were denied when they were created. Replicants come with a built-in short lifespan, and Roy, Pris, and their fellow replicants are already close to dying when the movie starts. So, Blade Runner is the story of a killer who doesn't really want to kill— a femme fatale who isn't interested in seduction or manipulation, villains who don't want to be villains, and a vast, shining city that seems a lot clearer about its goals than any of the characters are. No wonder this became a cult movie that viewers have been arguing over, picking apart, and rewatching for 35 years now. We'll do a little of all of those things ourselves as we get into discussing the 1982 Blade Runner.
1: You remember the spider that lived in a bush outside your window? Orange body, green legs. Watched her build a web all summer. Then one day there's a big egg in it. The egg hatched.
0: The egg hatched?
1: Yeah.
0: And a hundred baby spiders came out. And they ate her.
2: Implants. Those aren't your memories. They're somebody else's. They're Tyrell's niece's.
1: Okay. Bad joke. I made a bad
0: joke. You're not a replicant. Go home. Okay?
2: So what do you guys think? Why is this movie such an enduring hit?
1: I mean, it wasn't a hit when it came out, right? I mean, Oh, no, worth, no, worth it doing? wasn't.
2: It got kind of mediocre-ish reviews, and it did kind of okay box office. Yeah. But it really has endured. I mean, it's got a reputation, certainly, as a cult masterpiece. Yeah, I, mean, I
3: feel like, and maybe I'm just reflecting on my own experiences with the movie, but I felt like there was a 10-year period where people weren't talking about Blade Runner, and then with the 1992 revival, uh, which became widespread with the release of the director's cut, I feel like that sort of, like, ground zero for modern Blade Runner fandom. I could be wrong. That's really when I latched onto it. You know, I saw this movie as a midnight movie, you know, when it was in re-release, and, and I thought, I've never seen anything like this before. This is this is a movie I'm going to be visiting a lot. And you know what? I was right. It's a movie, <laughs> <laughs> probably, on the short list of movies I've watched the most times. Mm-hmm. It's a movie I could pretty much watch at any given moment, I just kind of sink into it. And for me, I, a lot of it just has to do with just the enveloping atmosphere of it. It's a movie I like to just kind of live in and, and walk around in a little bit, and, and I find the questions it raise really interesting, but also it's a movie where I see something different every time.
1: Yeah, I mean, exactly right. I mean, I think it's the, the look and feel of the film that is uh, the primary reason why people keep returning to it. It's just, it's so beautiful. And, and, and I, I think Vangelis' score is a little underrated uh, mm-hmm. in terms of uh, being part of that um, seductive quality of the film. So, I mean, apart from just any th- action on the screen, it's such a beautiful piece of art art (laughs) just to watch. I mean, if you think about, like, cinematic worlds, like, great, vivid cinematic worlds, I mean, you'd have to put this among, you know, on a short list, right?
2: Yeah,
0: for sure. And and, and it's a beauty that isn't diminished by the passing of time and advances in technology. Like, it is definitely one of those movies that still looks as amazing today as it did in in 1982 and you don't have to look at it through the lens of like this looked amazing for the time and then there's some seams now but no there are no seams like it's still it's beautiful in i know on blu-ray on 4k like we know whatever transfer you're watching it's still beautiful and um i think that has helped like kept the the myth of it alive
3: every time those opening images that i and the cityscape just takes my breath away, and it's like, and with the music on top of it, it is just sort of this beautiful, but also foreboding and, and really unnerving looking cityscape. Uh, among the openings uh, of films, it's it's perfect. Mm-hmm.
2: I can't help but wonder if some of that is just the use of uh, miniatures and models mm-hmm. as opposed to flats or paintings or projections or, <laughs> you know, a lot of the other methods that were used at the time, and certainly, you know, nothing digital. Everything still has a really physical feel Mm -hmm. and like no matter how much you how much you blow it up or like how how much sharper images get. It still has like uh, that image of the sort of black pyramid uh, with all the flying cars sort Mm -hmm. of swooping around it. No matter how close you get to it, it Mm -hmm. still has a physicality to it that really says something about practical effects.
1: A couple of other things about the appeal of the film, too, is one, I think it's a perfect original uh, fusion of genres of science fiction and noir just being just beautifully woven together and i think that's part of it and the other thing is i think the world of the film is full of mystery and a mystery that, that it doesn't really go out of its way to define in terms of like how did this world come to be and what are what are the rules that dictate it and how do people live it is it, not really out there to answer all of those questions for you and so you can just kind of let, let your mind kind of circle around that
2: I do wonder – I have to wonder how much extra textuals matter in this case. Mm -hmm. Uh, I'm throwing that word out there just in hopes of of seeing Scott flinch. They don't. (laughs) But go ahead. Well, in this case, uh, you know, there's so much debate has been raised over – there have been eight different versions of this film Mm -hmm. in terms of different cuts. Some of those cuts have been exceedingly minor differences. But it's been a huge arguing point for uh, just cinema fans. Like which one is the definitive one? Which was is the best one? Like what is the the, – of this eight seconds, mean or not mean? Mm -hmm. And then on top of that, there's the ongoing controversy over whether Harrison Ford's character, Rick Deckard, is himself a replicant. And those two things have fueled, I think, a certain science fiction fandom, the fandom of of people defined often by their desire to nitpick and and pull (laughs) things apart and, and debate things endlessly and to be right. Like this film is debated in a way that few others are. And I can't help but wonder if those arguments have kept this film at the forefront in a way that, other beloved films like Ridley Scott's Alien, for instance, uh, haven't hung on in exactly the same way because it's, it's not constantly being brought back in geek circles.
3: In terms of the versions, I feel like there are really only two significant versions of this film and there's variations on those. There is the theatrical cut with the voiceover and there's the 1992 director's cut without the voiceover and with some significant additions and a different ending. And I feel like the final cut is just sort of like fine-tuning that with a few additions and there's other versions of the theatrical cut. And here's where I confess to never actually watching the theatrical cut all the way through. Mm. I feel like I'm a huge fan of this film and I someday, you know, someday I'll sit down and do it, but I, I've, I've gone back and I've watched the differences, I've watched the narration, I know everything that happens in the theatrical cut, but if I'm going to dedicate two hours of watching this film, I'm going to watch a version of the film I really like. Mm-hmm. And my experience of the theatrical cut is I found the voiceover intrusive. I find it sort of good information to to know, and and I think that probably is you know in terms of extra textuals, I think I can bring that information into my understanding of the later versions. But I, I feel like the the changes made to make the director's cut, the removal of the voiceover, the addition of the unicorn, the removal of the happy ending, make it a much better film. I ride with that version <laughs> and variations of that.
0: Yeah, I watched the theatrical version for the first time in preparation for this, just because it seemed like something I should do. And while we 're confessing uh you know <laughs> s- semi shameful opinions like i don 't think that the voiceover in the original is i mean it 's kind of famously a terrible voiceover and ford you can hear his reluctance in every single syllable. Mm. But I kind of like the idea of the voiceover and like I can imagine a world in which that voiceover is delivered in a different way where it really works.
3: It's a noir.
0: Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah, exactly. It fits the noir and it does kind of, and this may be coming from the fact that I have seen this movie multiple times, but like it does provide a little more sensory input during those beautiful, long, slow scenes where you're just like watching, you know, the beauty. And, like, that's great, but it's also kind of nice to, like, have something else happening during those <laughs> those moments as well. I did kind of enjoy the voiceover in some of those moments that I have taken in and soaked in over over the years. and But this was, like, a different way to take them in that I kind of liked. Uh, the happy ending is trash, and I'm glad it's gone. <laughs>
1: <laughs> yeah, I wonder if it was just a matter of direction, like Harrison Ford, Ford's in the booth and you just tell him, Be actor, Harrison Ford, not media tour, Harrison Ford, and then maybe you get a better, better performance out of him. Tyrell really did a job on Rachel, right down to a snapshot of a mother she never had, a daughter she never was. Replicants weren't supposed to have feelings. Neither were Blade Runners. What the hell was happening to me? Yeah, my experience is mostly with the director's cut as well, though I have seen the theatrical uh, and uh, prefer the director's. But you're right about the noir aspect being appropriate. And I think, obviously, Warner Brothers felt a little bit of information was necessary to kind of carry the audience through the movie.
3: I mean, there are things I did not pick up until I actually read the novel, which it's very loosely based on in some ways, but other ways very connected to. But the whole idea of animals, actual live animals being Mm -hmm. a precious commodity Mm -hmm. is so central to, to the Philip K. Dick novel. And you don't necessarily get what's going on with the, with the owl the first time around watching this movie if you don't have that narration.
2: I think that the movie cues you in that the owl isn't real because it keeps catching those uh, the reflections Reflected of eyes. its uh, pupils, which are exactly the same as what you get from the replicants. Which, uh, well, the thing I never understood about the Voight Kampf test is like, why do you need all of these <laughs> abstract <laughs> questions when you can just look at their weird glowing eyes and see that they're they're artificial? I mean, it's a great effect. It's a, a unnerving and eerie every time it comes. Up, but every time it comes up, I think, why? Why did you need all these questions, mm-hmm. Scott? You've brought up the noir aspects a couple times now, and that was one thing that we wanted to kind of dive into. If you look at this structurally, it's a gumshoe novel with a femme fatale, and the femme fatale mm-hmm. has a, a bad husband that she wants to be rid of, and she falls into a relationship with him with the PI, even though she doesn't really care for him all that much. And then mm-hmm. the evil husband dies except that it isn't constructed that way at all. Like so many of those tropes don't actually fit those tropes. It, it only looks like that at the most surface level possible. So the film is playing with noir ideas and it's certainly playing with noir tones, but it also in is doing a lot of new things with them. I'm curious sort of what you guys think about the noir elements here, how they work, how they don't work.
1: Well, first of all, I, I, do you think that she'd, doesn't have an interest in, in Deckard. Oh.
2: oh, God. This is going to be <laughs> one
1: you, of Do we want to move to this? <laughs> we can move to
3: this. Because I, uh, I think it's an interesting element of it uh, as well. We're talking about the love scene or sex scene or rape, depending on how you look at mm-hmm. it, right? To me, I think it's an unsettling scene. But I also feel like it's thematically tied into the rest of the film. We're talking about a scene in which he says, kiss me and sort of pushes himself on her. And in the film about who is and who isn't human and what defines consent and what defines free will, I think this is kind of a pushing those ideas to a very uncomfortable place in a really interesting way. And I think we have to decide for ourselves what's going on, what's going through his head, what's going through her head. The question of whether or not he's a replicant or not factors into it as well. And she clearly being a replicant. What kind of free will she has and whether or not her reaction to him afterward is a result of actual choice and actual fondness for him or something else. I think it's part of the ambiguity of the film.
2: I didn't find it that ambiguous. I I think I keep forgetting how unpleasant I find that scene. And as we're sitting down and recording this, the Harvey Weinstein thing is in full flower and we're hearing all of these other accusations coming up. And like all of this stuff is is very much in the zeitgeist right now. And watching this scene where she literally tries, he kisses her, she tries to leave. He slams the door in her face, throws her against a wall and demands that she express affection for him that she clearly doesn't feel
0: Red is rape to me. And she's already denied him in the movie up to this point, like when he's asked her to the bar for a drink. and um, She hangs up on him. Yeah, there's quite a bit of not taking the no in that relationship that is, is really uncomfortable. I see what you're saying, Keith, as far as how it does kind of raise a lot of the themes of free will that are inherent in this movie. But I don't think it engages with that aspect of it. I am I I disagree with you there. I think like mm-hmm. that relationship is all about... Deckard and his evolution and what he thinks about replicants, and it is not at all about Rachel. She's just like a catalyst in in what's happening for Deckard. I don't get any sense of her connection to him beyond self preservation, which is kind of a terrible romantic motivation. And like <laughs> this, this is a romance. I, I think the heart of the movie is supposed to be this romance between them, and it just. It isn't there for me because there is nothing coming from Rachel that I can connect to as a viewer.
1: So I guess my question then would be: Where do you think the director is coming from on this? Is this is I, I don't like it to say the word intent. What was his intent? Because I, I always have that whole thing about the fallacy of intent, but. What was in his intent? What was I'm, he trying to, what was he trying to do? And did, he, did he follow to... it? Is this a mistake on his part?
2: Uh, I mean, I can't tell. I can't tell you what he whether it was a mistake or mm. or what he intended. I think there are two things going on here. One, the script went through eight different rewrites, and then Fancher was bumped off the script, and somebody else came in and rewrote it. I kind of feel like the major scenes we see with Rachel feel like they came from different drafts. And the draft where he sexually assaults her, and by the end she goes along with it, either either out of fear or because she sees what she can get out of it feels like a, a different thing from towards the end where she says she loves him and they go off together. But either way for me, the whole thing fits very neatly into a noir story where she is trying to get out of a relationship she doesn't want to be in. In this case, it's not literally somebody that she's married to that she doesn't want to be married to anymore. It's literally her creator slash owner. But in the same way, she is looking for an out. And he comes along and offers it to her in the form of a relationship he sees as love. If she's doing it deliberately and manipulating him, if she makes a choice at some point during that assault to go along with it, and then realizes she can use him, that would fit entirely within the greater world of noir stories, Mm -hmm. which very commonly have femme fatales going through with that kind of relationship with somebody they have no affection for, no interest in, but are willing to to ape it. Now, I'm with Genevieve. I don't think that the film fully plays that out. I don't think it executes it as well as it could or should. And I don't think it executes it as well as I would want it to, to believe that the theme is there. But if I look at it through a noir lens, I can at least stomach it.
1: I mean, I I think you you see a certain, uh, putting it euphemistically, roughness to in film noir with regard to relationships between men and women. Uh, and that carries up, that carries over yeah. into this movie. But the other interesting thing too, and this is something you brought up in the keynote, is just how it defies and frustrates your expectations of all of these g- genres. You know, I mean, if, if you are going approaching Blade Runner as a sci- sci-fi action film, for example, is it really satisfying? at all on that on that level probably not it has some really exciting scenes in it but it isn't it's not a thrill ride (laughs) it's a very this is a very moody picture that uh, doesn't really um, that slips every kind of definition that you want to attach to it
2: yeah but at the same time i mean scott was kind of he wanted to edge more towards a chinatown kind of feel chinatown isn't a satisfying action movie either no but you know it's a great film it's
1: solidly a detective film though
0: yeah that's true one of the things that i always surprises me about this is how little detective Thing yeah, actually, does. it's more of like just a very drawn out chase film or, mm. or you know, a pursuit film. It, and because there are the four replicants, it does give me a little bit of that like treasure hunt or video game mentality. of Like you, you got to check them off one by one, you know, or it's the, the different stages of the quest. And uh, he only
3: finds one of them. Yeah, yeah. I mean, he's, not the, he's not that great. I mean, yeah. he, I mean, he's probably the best at what he does. But you know, what he does must be very hard.
2: He's kind of looking for needles in a haystack.
0: I guess the big scene of detective work is the the photo scene, mm. um, enhance enhance <laughs> enhance scene. <laughs> it enhance. becomes such
3: a cliche, but it's so it was. It's so thrilling in this.
0: Well, thrilling is one way to, <laughs> to describe it. I, I found myself getting increasingly annoyed with it <laughs> this time through because it, it is very drawn out in the way that so much in this movie is drawn out. And I do think it's maybe the one instance in this movie where the effects or the the details of the world don't really work for me in terms of the like going into the photo and then it becoming three-dimensional and... I don't think it's presented on screen in a way that like makes it very clear what this technology is and what it does and how he's utilizing it, and it just comes across like enhance, enhance until I get to the thing that I need to see. But
1: yeah. until you get to the thing you need to see, it, it feels like blow up, right? <laughs> yeah. like, like when you're just like you're you're, fo- you're zooming in and zooming in and zooming in, and it's like what are you seeing? Can you really say what that thing is? And then of course, you know, you're actually able to enhance and get information from it
2: i mean it doesn't 100 percent work for me especially since uh, no matter how many times i watch it i find myself thinking what is he looking for what are we seeing why is this important mm-hmm. but it does lead to a his his one moment of inspired yeah. detective work <laughs> and b that moment where he walks into the, her, her dressing room doing that voice yeah his, <laughs> his nerd voice which is one of the. Best acting moments in the movie. I can never believe that that voice is coming out of Harrison Ford. It's great. And uh, like watching that whole scene build and come apart is one of my favorite unheralded moments in the movie. There are a lot of moments in this movie that are justly famous and quotable and memorable. I'm not sure that Harrison Ford's, hey, I'm, I'm a geek who's trying to break into your dressing room under false pretenses. I'm looking for holes. Like
0: that whole business is so good. He drops the voice very briefly though. During it doesn't he
2: i mean it's clearly not rick deckard's forte yeah it's a
3: lot it's a lot of fun and also it's another detail that raises the question is he good at his job
0: (laughs) i mean he's pretty handy with a blaster
3: i guess everyone else is just really bad at blade running
1: (laughs) well i mean the society is is not all that functional
2: yeah yeah that's true uh,
1: so a lot of people are not good at their jobs
2: yeah, this is an interesting future. You know, it's in many ways, it's a very sleek future. Like the flying cars look super functional uh, and everything is very black and shiny. And you've got like the giant video screens everywhere. Very monolithic. And But at the same time, when you get close up on technology, it's kind of got that Brazil mm. janky mm-hmm. ass clutched together feeling to it. So there's this kind of a and, – and, and you've got a technology that can send people into space and send sea beams glittering through the tent. Have your gate, but that also like can't come up with a scanner that doesn't look like eight different computers well, piled on each other.
3: I think the good tech is elsewhere. I think the people who could have gotten off I Earth. Mean, mm. There's a few people like Tyrell who I think kind of making the best of what's what's still around but i get the feeling that a lot of people have new life awaits them on the off-world colonies and are taking up on that because because earth's not in great shape so I, th- I think you get the sense of this rundown world that's like it's sort of like the center of the empire that's also become sort of the outskirts of the empire in some ways i
2: find it fascinating with science fiction worlds like I, star wars gets a lot of praise for being a like a beat-up world where everything looks used and star trek gets a lot of praise for being this like shiny futuristic world that people would want to live in. I find it so much more interesting when science fiction worlds do both, Mm -hmm. when they acknowledge that in the future, as now, there will probably be disparity of income and disparity of resources and the different levels of technology.
1: And also things that we believe advances that we believe are going to make our lives better that aren't i mean what are what are replicants but that right of this this extraordinary feat of of technology and engineering that is now coming back to kill us uh (laughs) uh, you know so so you know we're not in control of our own creations we're also also this this the world we imagine for ourselves this better world we imagine for ourselves is not necessarily better than we, we were before
2: This is one of the few science fiction movies I can think of where our artificial intelligences are coming to kill us and we kind of deserve it. And we don't. (laughs) we don't deserve it for playing god which is the usual excuse for for movies like transcendence or splice or morgan or ex machina or whatever it is the the feeling of it's like you crossed a line that shouldn't be crossed you scienced where you shouldn't have scienced so you You're know tampered in god's domain exactly this movie doesn't get into that i don't think it comes up to the idea of if you create sentient life and you make it your slave then you might deserve what you get. Yeah, beyond trying to kill us,
3: it's sort of prompting an existential crisis about what humanity is. I mean, that's sort of the central theme of, of the film. And it doesn't really beat you over the head with this, but, you know, watching again, I mean, who's the most soulful character in the film? It's Roy Batty. I mean, Roy, Roy is is this sort of like a ruthless killing machine in some ways, but he's also this, the most reflective the most introspective, the most philosophical character in the entire film, and, and he's a replicant.
0: And he also knows when to clench a dove in his hand for, for <laughs> effect. Yes. I think. Kind of in talking about this, we also need to talk about the character of J.F. Sebastian uh, mm-hmm. uh, and his okay. and his
3: friends. He might be the most selffulfilling. Yeah, in yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah I, I, I
0: was debating which which you were going to name Roy Roy Batty or, or J.F. Sebastian. Yeah. Um, which I think, uh, just to quickly go back to something else, we noted about the social disparity in this future. World and like JF Sebastian just kind of living in this creepy old abandoned complex because he can't go off world because he has this disease. So I, I just I think he's like an interesting reflection of that uh, aspect of this world. But uh, to go back to what we were talking about, about artificial intelligence, like he's creating these horrible, <laughs> these <laughs> terrifying creatures, to, you know, as his friends. And like the replicants are kind of like the shiny apex of, of that instinct, you know, and something that is so close to humanity. And what J.F. Sebastian is making is not that and it's it's upsetting and you can understand the impulse you know that is behind it but it's not a good thing that he's doing you just don't like creepy clowns i I don't like creepy clowns but i I don't like a lot of creepy wind-up toy creatures with ball gags in their mouths. (laughs) they (laughs)
3: seem They seem benign.
1: Yeah, see they seem char- benign, but I don't. Yeah. Uh... I'm sort of charmed by them. Actually, yeah, they're. <laughs> I mean, they're
2: a little eerie, but I think they're sweet. Yeah. Do you think they're happy though? I, I'm not sure how. Do they enjoy their they lives? <laughs> I, I, like, I'm not sure how intelligent or functional they are. Apart from uh, from the clown and the teddy bear, they may not be sophisticated enough to actually be intelligent and I think one of the one it's of the things another example of the
3: film like like making you question like where the line is too. yeah
2: exactly mm-hmm. I think one of the things that's creepiest is when Pris positions herself among mm-hmm. them there's that feeling of like all of these essentially like maybe weird looking maybe unsettling looking but essentially like gentle toys and then there's a killer in their midst that looks exactly like them that's, that's creepy and I think it's really well done
1: really well done all that stuff that's my favorite section of the movie anything involving him and his I, William Place. Sanderson is probably my so maybe good. my favorite
0: performance in the movie, I think he's great. and it's yeah. also
1: an example of the of the film being maybe a little more whimsical and, and, and entertaining and uh, wonder. You know, it's just there's something kind of pleasurable purely about those scenes that that isn't necessarily uh, how you describe the rest of the movie around it.
2: Yeah, it, I mean that sequence where he's just sort of hanging out with Pris and his toys in particular feels more like something out of AI than mm. anything else in this movie.
3: And Pris does get to mm-hmm. play the film vital role in this in a way that... That's uh,
2: true, except she's kind of shilling for her dark husband sure. as opposed to trying to escape him. Yeah. But yeah, she she does. The whole business around William Sanderson, I think, is is interesting because everybody in this film is so compromised. You know, Deckard is, is a killer and the killers are manipulating people and using them and murdering Murdering them. And Tyrell himself is like hiding in his ivory tower away from the chaos he's helped create. Everybody in this film is some kind of like user or vampire bully except Sebastian. He's just kind of a, an overgrown kid sitting sadly with his toys and I think one of the reasons that we like him is he's the only person in the movie that isn't vile in some way.
3: I mean, he might be compromised just by his association with Tyrell. I mean, he certainly mm-hmm. enabled Tyrell and, and helped create the situation that the film finds itself in.
1: Is his the only act of kindness in the film? Of, of bringing her into his home? Is that is Does anyone do
3: anything kind in of the film besides, besides that?
2: Off the top mm. of
0: my head, not that I can think of.
3: I mean, there's, there, Almost his character laying them off the hook at the end.
0: Yeah, but nothing that character does can be called kind. <laughs> That's a fundamentally unkind character. I mean, one of the th- okay, so
2: one of the things that sort of baffles me most about the movie is is Zora's character. Like, she doesn't necessarily do anything kind, but she's also she just comes across as a working girl. She's got a job. Is she just out there like making money so the rest of the replicants can? can function why isn't she with them on their quest for more life is she just like getting by day to day working nine to five
3: i had the feeling they were all working together and just had different aspects of the job. I mean, I think it's a little underexplained, but I, I, but I think she's certainly connected to all of them
2: still. So I mean, she certainly doesn't come across as, as kind, but she doesn't come across as malevolent either.
0: Yeah. But we're like in that little introduction that we're given to them at the beginning, isn't she described as like a fundamentally like violent or dangerous? Per- like she's, she's like, like a, a political she, assassin. Yeah. So like we're told that she's dangerous. We don't, Really ever see that in the she in the story? The film is, yeah,
2: she yeah, She's puts on a, a bikini and a, some Saran wrap in f- order to run and falls through
0: several panes of glass uh, and high heels. Because <laughs>
2: let me let me tell you, when I know I'm about to be running for my life, first thing I do is put on the stilettos.
0: I mean, replicants can run in heels. <laughs> <laughs> That's what my husband said. Programmed. What she's programmed to? I'm like, of course she. And it's mm, a, it's another weapon know. if she needs it. <laughs> I think one
2: of the things that for me just comes out of rewatching Blade Runner is a sense that some of these set pieces are incredibly remarkable, but to some degree that just don't all fit together. Mm. Uh, His Deckard's whole, like, I am an actual gumshoe, I'm going to examine the evidence, and it's going to lead me to a trail of clues, and then I'm going to find my first target doesn't necessarily fit with the rest of the movie and his his actions in the rest of the movie. Roy Batty, like, going back and forth between this sort of gentle philosopher and, like, a drooling madman screaming doggerel on the roof doesn't necessarily fit together for me. Rachel kind of has her, like, before and after periods that don't entirely fit together for me. Am am I wrong in thinking that this movie feels not confused because it's so of a tone and of a piece, But feels like a lot of strange puzzle pieces welded together.
3: I can see having that impression. (laughs) (laughs) I I never, it's never felt that disjointed to me. But I, mean, I feel like we're dealing with characters who are, by their character or programming, not necessarily going to be consistent. From, from moment to moment in some ways, these replicants are living through life and, and sped up you know, 1.5 speed or, or faster than that. So I think they're going to go through changes in, in attitudes and, and philosophies a lot faster than, than uh, regular humans would. So I think you see Batty go through uh, sort of angry Avenger to... Philosophical madman by the end. I mean, I mean, it's it's almost like Hamlet, like by the end, where he's just sort of addressing the fundamental questions of existence uh, as he's dying. I mean, that's all that that works for me
0: he does work work for me because, as you say, he is he's dying. Like he right. real he realizes he's in the last moments of of his life, and I think he can be forgiven for being a little inconsistent <laughs> in his emotions and <laughs> at a time like that.
3: Well, I think also with Deckard, I I like that the question remains unanswered as to whether or not he's a replicant. But I think in. Many ways, the film makes a lot more sense if he is just because, mm-hmm. you know, you see this, this man who thinks he has a past. He doesn't. I mean, one of the clues that people point to is that he is a replicant and so his place is covered in photographs and it's something that, that the replicants latch on to. And if you see someone who's just been against his knowledge, you know, created to destroy his own kind. This is someone who's going to have a profound identity crisis, if not on a conscious level, on a a subconscious level. His programming is just going to break down. And I think that is, to me, I think that's sort of the best read on his character. Though I would never actually say the film definitely says he's a replicant.
1: But it's a relevant question. You think that it be answered? Is it important that it be answered?
0: I don't know if it's important that it be answered, but I think Keith just demonstrated why it's a relevant question in, yeah. in terms no. of the, that, that character. Yeah.
1: yeah, yeah, I guess so. I
3: think it's better if it's
1: left unanswered. It is that. Uh, it's funny to, that that the, hasn't the, stopped. That the new one just new one just <laughs> answers it immediately, at least with regard to uh, Ryan Gosling's character.
2: Although it still doesn't answer it about Harrison Ford's character. <laughs> but, but, get into it. Second, well, one, second one thing
1: one thing I will say about this movie though, and I don't know. If it has to do with it being disjointed in any way, but like I, you know, I just, I just saw it twice with Keith. I saw it once uh, on the big screen and in digital projection, and then I saw it at his home on uh, f- his 4K television, which was very nice. Congratulations, and Keith! It's so <laughs> it's really nice. And, and I, I will <laughs> say, the film is a fundamentally elusive experience for for me. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's very hard for me, even now after after seeing this. Extraordinarily vivid film, twice in short succession to have really strong uh, opinions or recall or or super cogent take as I would on. Virtually any other type of film that, that, <laughs> that I would see have seen that often, and it's so recently, I guess. And so, uh, and I don't know if that's a if I consider that a flaw of the film uh, rather than just the reality of it. Um, it is like tears in the uh, tears. Uh, in the <laughs> rains.
3: No. Well, I think that's part of the. I think that's what draws me back is mm-hmm. that it is elusive and it is. Unanswered, and like you know, you say disjointed. I I say uh, uh, dreamlike. I say dreamlike. Yes, <laughs> yeah. exactly.
2: It is pretty dreamlike. Here's the thing: I have an emotional reaction to this film and an intellectual one, and the intellectual one says there are a lot of interesting pieces here that don't add up and the emotional one just reacts to, to the music, to the, the Mm -hmm. tone, to the performances, which we haven't talked about much apart from Sanderson's. The performances lure me in to this film over and over and over. And I'm, I'm very positive on this movie. I just—I find myself examining my positivity and uh, wondering to some degree where it comes from because the intellectual side of my brain keeps trying to latch onto some story thread in this thing that makes sense, some character development that makes sense, and a lot of it doesn't. But, it, its I mean, it's a wonderful film. It's a wonderful feeling and looking film and always has been.
3: Well, I think we should also talk about the... Period in which it emerged in some ways, and, and and Scott's career. I mean, Scott started in commercials where arresting images triumphs all, and and it appeared alongside sort of like the high point of the early days of music videos, where where it's you don't see the fast cutting, but you definitely see like sort of you know translations of postmodernism, sort of screens within screens, and and. and brands you know sort of the corporate culture like foreground in, in some really interesting ways it's definitely it's to me it's kind of the triumph of of, of that moment in, in many ways
2: at the same time this was his first film after alien and alien is in, in many ways a conventional start to finish story i mean it was it was establishing a template that had not fully been established yet and he did we talked about it at great length on a previous podcast we he did amazing things with this kind of story and a particularly the look of it the the imagistic visually driven look of it but at the same time there is a monster there are a bunch of people fighting the monster in the end one of them survives the monster that that is a pretty conventional story Blade Runner is so unconventional Mm -hmm. by by comparison
1: Tasha, you were talking about your uh, intellectual response to it, and I guess your emotional re- response to it. Mm-hmm. And I, w- it would, it's my just general aesthetic opinion that the characters and story, that intellectual component, it should be minimized. My interest as a film filmgoer is in the other side of that, is in how the tools of the medium are used to express something. And uh, a lot of that, in this film is done through the world of the film and how it's established and how it's photographed and how the music works and and the effects and uh, just the feel of the film is crucial to me to the point where all these other aspects are not as important um that that just that's just me and my own way of looking at things so i sort of cherish blade runner for those reasons um but if you think about like say Harrison Ford's performance in the movie. I don't think it's one of his more interesting or compelling performances. I don't connect to it terribly strongly. And I, and I think w- removing that voiceover from the dr- director's cut almost properly... Lessens his presence in the
2: film. It decentralizes him. Yeah. yeah. It makes him much less the kind of defining part of the film. I think that his performance here is really interesting because we think of Harrison Ford, we think of these smirking hip shot characters, and people forget how goofy Han Solo was. Mm-hmm. Like, it, you can see supercuts on the internet of Han Solo being lost, confused, hurt, scared wigged out, uh, incompetent. But people don't remember him that way. People remember him, uh, you know, slouched in the the cantina shooting Greedo first. People <laughs> remember him as the, uh, the guy with the snappy comeback. People remember Indiana Jones, the guy with the whip. People remember him as the president punching people out on his plane. Like uh, Harrison Ford's characters just have this sort of you know, rap for being in control, smirking and and like always knowing what they're doing. he spends most of this movie looking terrified out of his gourd, and like he mm. spends the entire final act crawling backwards across a rainy rooftop, desperately trying to get away from something, running away from it, going out a window to get away from it. He spends so much of this movie scared i and I find it fascinating I find it a fascinating choice. I think that the movie is not a hundred percent sold on him as. as the hero, even as the protagonist, and as we've said several times, not necessarily good at his job. And that makes him a really compelling character for me, okay. in part because Ford just kind of goes for broke with it. Like, this is not a very ego-filled performance.
3: And not necessarily good. I mean, that's part of why the I'm less unnerved by the sexual assault thing. It's like, I'm you not know, sure Deckard's a good guy. You know, and I think, again, I, th- I think it taps into the central question of the film. It's like, this is someone who sees this person as, as less than human and, and should just be able to bend to his will because of that. And, and uh, you know, there's sort of an evolution of that over the course of the film where he kind of comes to a greater understanding of, of who replicants are, but I don't think he's a morally, you know, totally good character.
1: I think we're conditioned to believe that Harrison Ford, being Harrison Ford and being the hero of this film, is the hero. But you, you know, the more I, the more you watch it, the more you think, "Hey, Rutger Hauer and <laughs> Daryl Hannah, you, you I, I see where you're coming from in this, and uh, mm-hmm. it's kind of reversing my uh, presumptions about who's the hero and who's the villain in this thing."
2: Yeah, I think this movie reverses a lot of presumptions, and I think that's one of the things that makes it so interesting. So I think it's going to be interesting to take it up in conjunction with Blade Runner 2049, which also does some unconventional things, also does some very conventional things, and I think kind of takes up some of the themes that are underlined at play here and makes them more overt. We'll get into that in more detail in part two. In the meantime, we're going to move on to feedback, so we'll be right back. As usual, because of the way we've been recording early to get around film festival season, we're running a few episodes behind on feedback. Although, frankly, we're surprised we're not hearing more ranting about Mother from you guys. Would love to hear your thoughts on that film. Or maybe, given some of the things our old buddy and sister podcast host Matt Singer has posted about people's theatrical experiences after Mother, maybe we just want to hear how berserk the audience has got in your screenings. (laughs) For now, though, here are some of the letters we received about our pairing of Stand By Me and It. Keith, uh, you are up first.
3: Sam writes, I loved your examination of It. Thanks, Sam. Oh, all of our exam... Not just mine, okay. (laughs) I loved your examination of It and I agree with every conclusion that you reached except one thing that I had a different read on and a very different reaction to Stan's Modigliani fear than Tasha. Where Tasha suggested it was a superficial odd one out, to me it was a highlight in the film's portrayal of fear. While a viewer might be better able to understand Mike being haunted by his parents' death or Eddie's hypochondria, Stan's fear of a scary picture felt very much more representative of how children create fear for themselves. Growing up, my grandfather had a painting from a theatrical production of Harvey that he directed hanging in his basement. It was a life-size portrait of himself posing with a six-foot-tall doll-eyed rabbit in the painterly style of John Singer's Sargent. i'm dying (laughs) to see this please send pictures uh fear this painting kept me out of the basement for years and absolutely ruined donnie darko for me the image itself is innocuous but still sends shivers down my spine this may still have been a shortcut to give stan a fear without having to invest time into building him into an actual character but it was still revelatory to see such a specific fear from my own childhood realized on screen and for a movie about the power of fear that was a very welcome detail I'll add to this, this, it's the one detail I know Stephen King has, has, has singled out as being a great part of the film. So,
1: you're not, <laughs> a, you're not alone. Is it, well, is, it the, the, is it the director of Maximum Overdrive?
2: Yeah, <laughs> yeah it's, it's good to know that Stephen King thinks that this was a good part of the film, because now I can, I can loathe it unreservedly. I love Stephen King as a writer. He's not necessarily the most trustworthy film critic. Um, I actually do agree that this is very representative of, of how kids create fears out of something weird Weird and random, they see that it comes across as uncanny. And that description, uh, Sam, of the, the painting in your basement sounds horrifying <laughs> and nightmarish. Again, and I agree. Please,
3: please send pictures.
2: <laughs> yes, absolutely. But again, for me, I think it was just a, a feeling that piled on top of everybody else's nightmares. It was just too much.
1: Exactly right. I mean, how many nightmares had we seen until we get to that point, right? So we already have that to deal with. And then it's an example of just the CGI run amok. Uh, and uh, I think maybe the very specific nature of the sequence itself, the the way it's pulled off is maybe more objectionable than the conceit.
2: I think that after seeing Ben being chased by like that headless, herky jerky smoking man, I think anything would, would have been less scary for me. I honestly think that if this was a story about a kid haunted by a painting, if it was about, Stan and Stan's experience, the painting and the the distortion of it, the creepy visual of it. Well, I mean, the the same director did the same thing in Mama, who also has that weird elongated unnatural face. And she's horrible horrifyingly creepy. So I think that in isolation, Stan's nightmare makes a lot more sense to me. But just piled up with everything the other kids are facing, it just seemed like both too much and not enough because it wasn't personal to him.
1: America disagrees.
2: (laughs) (laughs) And so does Stephen King. Uh, Here's a longer letter that looks at the character of Beverly Marsh in it and asks, did she really have to be drawn in such a lazy way? Scott, you want to read this one?
1: Yes, uh, Kevin writes. You touched on its damsel in distress treatment of Beverly a little in the podcast, but I think the film's lazy treatment of Beverly is much more extensive. It's like the filmmakers thought that since they were making an eighties nostalgia piece, they had to include the casual sexism of eighties popular culture. Beverly's fears are entwined with her sexuality and her fear of being sexualized. The big reason she doesn't fit in is that people have spread rumors that she's "quote unquote" easy. The buckets of blood spraying from her sink are obviously connected with the onset of her period, and in the real world, her father is clearly making a terrifying sexual threat to her. That all makes sense and fits in with the movie's use of childhood fears, taking literal form through the torments of Pennywise slash It. But the movie itself only, or at least mostly, seems to see Beverly in terms of her sexuality. There are multiple scenes of the boys ogling her in her underwear, which, okay, a group of boys possibly seeing a live girl in her underwear for the first time are quite possibly going to have a reaction similar to that in the movie. But then we get another scene of them ogling her while she sundays, with Richie making a joke about whether she's going to take her clothes off. Later, she casually flirts with the old pharmacist, who flirts back, and it's all played as a joke. Ha ha, here's a grown man in a position of trust flirting with a 12-year-old. And while we're supposed to find him creepy... We're also supposed to think it's funny, which really does not fit with Beverly's apparently deep-seated fear of her own sexuality. Finally, Beverly being kidnapped is the inciting incident to have the boys go into the sewer to confront Pennywise. That, as you said in the podcast, is just lazy. But to make things so much worse, the way they revive Beverly when they find her is Ben kisses her. For a sweet, beautiful beat, I really thought the kiss wasn't going to work, and they were going to have to find a non-sleeping beauty method for waking Beverly up, but no. Of course that's how you wake someone up who's in some sort of demon-caused floating coma. It's also disappointing to me. In Beverly's first interaction with Ben, she's confident and funny and smart. She's also positioned as braver than the boy sometimes. She's the first to jump off the cliff. She's the first to realize Pennywise feeds on fear. But for me, those things are outweighed by a series of lazy decisions that detract from what could have been a much better character. At least she got to have a character, unlike Mike.
2: There is a lot to unpack here. I'm going to start with uh, Beverly's fear of her sexuality. It is fairly common in abuse victims uh, for them to act out sexually, for them to find ways to try to own their own sexuality. And I thought the movie was actually pretty smart about that. I don't think that it's, it's ogling Beverly. I think that it's having her act out in ways that she's not allowed to act out around the home and that it's a coming of age thing. She is trying to own her own body and control how her body is put in the world. And the boys around her, I think their reaction is appropriate. They try to be cool about it, but they're also kind of getting their minds blown. I didn't mind that aspect of the film at all, uh, because I think it's very in keeping with how people act when they're they're being controlled in this fashion.
3: Really, to me, I thought it was a pretty interesting portrayal of, of female adolescents until the ending, which I thought was the, the whole damsel in distress thing was kind of undermined a lot of a lot of the, uh, the things that preceded it. But I, I thought, watching the film, I, th- I thought it did a pretty interesting job of teasing out some subtleties of what it means to be a girl on the, on the verge of adolescence and suddenly you realize you're recognized as a, as a sexual object by those around you, even people who, for whom it's really inappropriate to be a sexual object and, you know, you want to be seen as things other than that and then you kind of have to uh, deal with the fact that there's probably no avoiding in that even with you know with your friends i don't know i thought that all of that was fairly interesting and nuanced and then again it's kind of throw all that out the window with uh, the downs and the stuff at the end
0: i still haven't seen it and probably won't any anytime soon but uh, i did edit a piece for vox on this subject and on beverly's sexuality and how the film handles it so i i did want to mention it because i i thought it was really fascinating even having not seen the film but um, it's by my colleague asia romano and it's specifically talking about one scene which is the bathroom cleanup scene basically her argument is it like so many of stephen king's story is at some level a story about boys becoming men and that is like an ongoing fixation of his and she is positioned within that story about boys becoming men so in the context of that reading the boys helping her clean up after this traumatic blood Spreading scene is saying something about supporting women and believing them when they go through traumatic experiences and helping them. And that is positioned as a a moment of growing up and of maturity. And like I said, I still haven't seen it. So I'm just, you know, going off of this piece, but I really like that reading of it. I I, I do too.
1: That's a good, yeah, Yeah.
0: and
3: kind of of demystifying blood and, 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 you know, female body experiences in a way that you have to get past if you're not going to be a 12 year old boy your entire life. I mean,
1: her her relationship being part of this group is important to her. is helpful to her. I I don't yeah, I don't really agree with the points in this letter at all until except the last one about about the damsel in distress. Business. This is the most resonant character in the movie for me. It's the fear in the film that is that registers most sharply, and I, I thought it was treated just fine.
2: Yeah, I th- I think that she is not afraid of her sexuality. She is afraid of what her father may do to her mm-hmm. because of her sexuality, and that is a very different thing. That said, I mean, I said it at the time. We've said it before. You say it. Uh, I'll say it again. The whole damsel in distress thing is lazy and boring, and. Just a particularly egregious choice since it's such a big change from the book. And I felt the same way about the the kissing thing as you did. But I guess I let that one go because it's so obviously a – like how do we how do we respect the fact that Stephen King has a giant child orgy in his <laughs> book without doing any of it? So I, I kind of felt like I took that one with a grain of salt just because it, like there's sort of – nodding at it in the most squeamish way possible. It was kind of like, that could have gone worse. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, exactly. Okay, where are we going to take this? Oh, nowhere. All right, thank God. Finally, a listener named Blake wrote in to let us know that when we read his letter about It Comes at Night several episodes ago, we misidentified him as Quentin. (laughs) Quentin. Sorry, Blake. We did not mean to do that. We did get a letter in the same movie from a listener named Quentin, and uh, we're guessing it was a cut-and-paste error in the script. To be fair, those are both super cool names. They are, and and just so similar. They sound so (laughs) much alike. Uh, as always, we appreciate when our listeners share their thoughts and their recommendations. And in future, we will try to appreciate it so much that we consistently get your <laughs> names right. Uh, to reach us, you can leave a short voicemail at 773-234-9730 or email us at comments at show.net. We may feature your response on a future episode or post it on Facebook for discussion. wraps up this episode of The Next Picture Show. In part two, we'll jump 30 years into the future of the future and see how Villeneuve's version of Blade Runner mixes and matches with the one Hampton Fancher took from Philip K. Dick. And we absolutely promise we will not in any way provide the definitive ruling on whether Deckard is a replicant. Look for that later this week. Or better yet, subscribe to The Next Picture Show on Apple Podcasts or your podcatcher of choice. Find us at nextpictureshow.net, follow us at facebook.com slash nextpictureshow, and follow us on Twitter at nextpicturepod, so you'll always know when a new episode drops. Until then, we'll be scouring YouTube for footage of attack ships on fire off the shoulder of Orion. Somebody has to have had their Facebook live on while that was happening, right? We'll see you next time.
0: All those moments will be lost in time like tears in rain time to die